0: Welcome to Stan Dunn's Jewish Edition. This is your reader and host Mark Braun. Glad you could join us today. So I am to remind you, you are listening to a recording provided for the use of those who are blind or printed impaired. Materials or items read on Airs LA are the copyright property of the original authors and publishers. No unauthorized use or duplication is permitted. All right, let's get on to our first article. We got a couple of Israel stories here. First one from the Los Angeles Times, Monday, February 13, 2023, A Complete Loss of Hope for the Two-State Solution by Tracy Wilkinson. Washington. The intractable conflict between Israelis and Palestinians over land rights and safety has entered a new phase, one plumbing new depths of hatred and racial radical intransigence that the U.S. government no longer seems in a position to resolve or even mitigate. Now, an increasing number of experts are sounding the death knell for the two-state solution. Dennis Ross, the former special envoy who has negotiated Middle East peace issues for both Republican and Democratic presidential administrations, says Israelis and Palestinians have reached the, uh, the lowest ebb he has ever seen. There is a complete loss of hope on both sides, Ross recently told a television interviewer. Three of the administration's most senior officials—Secretary of State Anthony J. Blinken, CIA Director William Burns, and White House National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan—made urgent trips to the region in recent days in a bid to de-escalate rising violence and find common ground on which to build peace. But they came away unable to offer any reason to be less pessimistic than Ross. They spoke of a shrinking horizon of a, of possibility bad government on both sides and the likelihood of a major, of major outbreaks of deadly fighting. During Blinken's trip to the Middle East last month, the mantra from Israelis and Palestinians, and the left and right, was that the two-state solution, the proposed creation of a sovereign Palestinian and Israeli states that for decades had consensus support internationally and locally, was dead. Some of, the, some of the new, far-right Israeli government, the most extreme and religiously conservative in the nation's history, want to see the collapse of the Palestinian Authority, expulsion of many Palestinians, and confiscation of what West Bank land where, uh, where the Palestinian state would have been created. Many Palestinians see their government as weak and useless. President Mahmoud Abbas has overstayed his term by a decade and refused to hold elections, and have watched as Jewish settlers have expanded their occupation. The heavily guarded settlements have in effect made the creation of a contiguous Palestinian state impossible. Meanwhile, Abbas has long lost control over a northern swath of the West Bank, including cities such as Jenin and Nabias, giving rise to, a, an armed, to armed militant groups, which in turn has led to regular deadly incursions by Israeli troops. And yet the Biden administration, like most U.S. governments, except for that led by former President Trump, continues to promote the two-state solution as the way to resolve the Middle East's most stubborn and complex, complex conflict. The United States is committed to working toward our enduring goal of ensuring that the Palestinians and Israelis enjoy equal measures of freedom, security, opportunity, justice, and dignity, Blinken said on his last day in the Middle East after sipping through Cairo, Jerusalem, and Ramallah in late January. The only way to achieve that goal is through preserving and then realizing the vision of two states for two peoples u.s officials keep talking about their desire for a two-state solution but they do nothing to implement it said diana butu a palestinian attorney who once advised the palestinian authority implementation she said would have to include blocking settlement expansion along with the confiscations demolitions and evictions of palestinians by israel that have become routine it's a fantasy butu said from her home in haifa israel it will happen it will happen they say in reality it is as dead as a dodo bird martin indyk indyk a former u.s ambassador to israel and middle east special envoy said the administration cannot declare the two-state solution dead because there is no viable alternative one oft-mentioned option is a single state of israelis and palestinians with equal rights some polling of palestinians has shown growing support for that for the arrangement but the prospects for that happening are perhaps even dimmer than for the two-state solution. What would such a state be called? Who would be in charge of security? It would be neither Israeli nor Palestinians uh, and would, wouldn't satisfy the nationalist aspirations of either side. And because of higher birth rates among Palestinians, Israeli Jews might be a minority in such a state. Once you have equal rights, it's not a Jewish state anymore, said Indyke, now a fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations. What Israeli Prime Minister is going to hand the keys over to the Palestinians? Neither side is ready for the other side to rule. A new poll of Israelis and Palestinians released last month found what the posters called disturbing trends of intolerance and hatred exacerbated by separation, collapsed diplomacy, and dehumanization with each side less willing to recognize the other. The survey was conducted by Khalil Shikaki, director of the Palestinian Center for Policy and Survey Research, and Dahlia Scheindelin, a fellow at the Tel Aviv-based Century International, a liberal think tank, and sponsored in part by the U.S. Institute for Peace. They focus on surveying a younger than usual cohort, Israelis and Palestinians 15 and older. The median age in Israel is 30 and is 21 in the Palestinian territories. The poll showed support at an all-time low for the two-state solution, 20% among Israeli Jews 18 to 34 and about 30% for Palestinians in the same age group. The survey also found that for the first time, support in Israel for a non-democratic regime, unequal rights between Israelis and Palestinians is stronger than for a two-state solution. According to the poll, a majority on each side rejects the other's historical connection to the land and believes that violence is the only way to resolve the conflict. It's become a zero-sum game that has left are uh, room only for people with maximalist positions, extremists on both sides," said Lucy Curzon-Ellenbogen, director of the United States Institute of Peace's program for Israel and the Palestinian Territories. The new Israeli government is led by returning Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, who formed a coalition with some of the country's most radical anti-Era parties that were once taboo in Israeli politics. The cabinet, which is predominantly male, with several ultra-Orthodox officials, includes supporters of Meir Kahane, a radical rabbi branded a terrorist by the United States who was assassinated in 1990. The Biden administration is hoping Netanyahu will curb some of his colleagues' most radical, precedent-breaking tendencies as he tries to further Israel's acceptance in the region among Arab and Persian Gulf states. Seizing more Palestinian-claimed land or excessive repression would jeopardize such efforts. I've got my two hands on the steering wheel, Netanyahu has told foreign media on several occasions, insisting he, not his allies, will call the shots. But Netanyahu also needs his cabinet to support fundamental changes to the judiciary that could dash his own trial on corruption charges. He has denied that his challenge to the court system is self-motivated. On the Palestinian side, youth militias have sprung up that carry out attacks, particularly on settlers, and Abbas is said to be reluctant to crack down on them. The Palestinian Authority has also pursued an international campaign attempting to carry its grievances to forms, including the International Criminal Court, to obtain judgments against Israel. The moves have infuriated Israel and have also been condemned by the U.S. In his trip to the region, Blinken subtly chided both Netanyahu and Abbas for straying from democracy, urging that expression, civil rights, and values be respected in their respective countries. At the same time, however, the Biden administration would like to keep the Israeli-Palestinian conflict off the the top of its to-do list, preferring to focus on China and Ukraine. U.S. officials acknowledge that the dynamic in the Middle East is too volatile and the diplomatic distances too great to make progress. And Blinken and other senior U.S. officials have repeatedly told Israelis and Palestinians that it is incumbent on them to resolve their own problems. You need leadership in three places and you don't have it, said Daniel Kurtzer, who has served as U.S. ambassador to Israel and Egypt. Israel thinks it can destroy the Palestinians' violence infrastructure. The Palestinians think they can stop Israeli settlement and confiscation of land. Both have failed. There is no political outcome, just killing. When CIA Director Burns returned from his trip to the Middle East, he gave a troubling assessment to a group of Foreign Service students at Georgetown University. He warned of even greater fragility and even greater violence between Israelis and Palestinians, saying conditions resembled the eve of the Second Intifada. The Palestinian uprising that began in the year 2000 left nearly 5,000 people dead and is widely regarded as the end of the peace process. That was A Complete Loss of Hope for the Two-State Solution by Tracy Wilkinson from the Los Angeles Times, Monday, February 13, 2023. All right, and here is another Israeli story from the perspective section of the Los Angeles Times, Tuesday, February 14th, 2023. Israelis rally for democracy. Tens of thousands protest a proposal they say would weaken courts and lead to dictatorship. From the Associated Press. Jerusalem. Tens of thousands of Israelis, hoisting flags, blowing horns, and chanting democracy and no to dictatorship, protested Monday outside the Parliament building as Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu's government formally launched a contentious plan to overhaul the country's legal system. It was the largest protest outside the Knesset or parliament in years, and reflected the deep divisions over the plan. The proposed changes have triggered weeks of mass demonstrations, drawn cries of protest from influential businesses and former military leaders, and prompted a statement of concern from President Biden. Despite a plea from the nation's figurehead president to pull the legislation, put the legislation on hold, Netanyahu's allies approved a series of judicial changes during a stormy committee meeting. That now sends the legislation to the full parliament for a series of votes, the opening salvo and a battle expected to last weeks. They hear our cry. They hear the strong voice of truth opposition leader Yair Lapid said from the stage outside parliament. They hear it and they're afraid. Netanyahu and his supporters say the proposed changes are needed to rein in a judiciary that wields too much power. But his critics say the judicial overhaul is tantamount to a coup and will destroy Israeli democracy. They also say that Netanyahu, who was on trial for a series of corruption charges, has a conflict of interest. The protesters came from across the country. Organizers said more than 100,000 people attended, with LGBTQ activists and leaders of the opposition parties addressing the uh, the crowds. Trainloads of people arrived in Jerusalem uh, streamed up escalators in the main train station, cheering, whistling, and waving the blue and white Israeli flag. A few hundred gathered in protest at Jerusalem's Western Wall, the holy site where Jews can pray for marching toward the Knesset. In the Knesset, opposition lawmakers vociferously protested the proposed reform to judicial appointments ahead of uh, the committee vote to send the bill to the full parliament. During an unruly session, members of the opposition stood on the conference table and shouted as a key Netanyahu ally tried to hold the vote. The motion passed in a 9-7 committee vote. Monday night's protest march on the Knesset came a day after the country's figurehead president, Isaac Herzog, urged Netanyahu's government to delay its proposed changes to the judiciary. Moves, critics say, will weaken the Supreme Court and erode democratic checks and balances. Many protesters carried the Israeli flag and posters, decrying what they see as an attack on the country's democratic institutions. Shame, shame, they chanted. The people won't have it, said Demonstrator Boz Zarki. The se- separation of authority is critical to the existence of democracy. He added that citizens need to do everything in our power to prevent the changes from passing. Other large demonstrations were held in cities across the country. At a joint news conference at the Knesset, former Defense Minister Benny Gantz said opposition party leaders were united against the targeted assassination of democracy. Netanyahu and his allies took office in December, after Israel's fifth election in less than four years. That election, like its predecessors, focused on Netanyahu's fitness for office at a time when he's facing serious criminal charges. Netanyahu was lashed out of the country's police, prosecutors, and judges, saying he is the victim of a deep state conspiracy to oust him. His critics say he is motivated by a personal grudge. The legislation approved in Committee Monday would give Netanyahu's parliament majority, the, uh, parliament, parliamentary majority the authority to appoint all of the country's judges. A step critics say could pave the way for his corruption trial to be dismissed. A second change would take away the Supreme Court's authority to review the legality of major pieces of legislation known as Basic Laws. Netanyahu's coalition also plans on passing a law that would give parliament the power to overturn Supreme Court decisions it dislikes. Critics say that changes would unleash a process of centralization of power similar to those in increasingly authoritarian countries like Poland and Hungary. Eliad Shraga, chairman of the Movement for Quality Government, a civil society group that organized uh, demonstrations Monday, Monday's demonstrations, said the gathering was meant to send a message to support, uh, of support to the Supreme Court and a warning to the Knesset. "We want the fight to end," he said. "They want a change from Israel, of Israel from a liberal democracy to a dictatorship, a fascist dictatorship." Late Sunday. Herzog appealed to Netanyahu to put the legislation on hold and open a dialogue with the opposition. Netanyahu has not responded to the appeal. That was Israelis' Rally for Democracy from the Associated Press, out of the perspective section of the Los Angeles Times, Tuesday, February 14, 2023. All right, we shift back here at home and a major announcement from a, a longtime office holder statewide who is Jewish. From the Los Angeles Times, Wednesday, February 15, 2023, Feinstein to retire at end of her term. State's longest-serving senator says she still has much to achieve in the final months. By Jennifer Habercorn. Washington. Senator Dianne Feinstein, California's longest-serving senator, will not run for reelection next year, marking the end of one of the state's most storied political careers feinstein said tuesday she plans to remain in office through the end of her term i am announcing today i will not run for re-election in 2024 but intend to accomplish as much as i as much for california as i can through the end of my next year when my term ends feinstein said in a statement feinstein's retirement comes as little surprise given her age at 89 she is the oldest senator and the lack of fundraising she has done in preparation for another costly campaign what's more the race to fill a coveted Senate seat has already begun. Her silence until now created an awkward vacuum as fellow Democrats tiptoed around her formidable legacy while making clear they wanted her job. Democratic Representatives Katie Porter of Irvine and Adam B. Schiff of Burbank didn't wait for Feinstein to make it official before launching a Senate campaigns in recent weeks. Another Democrat, Representative Barbara Lee of Oakland, is expected to jump into the contest as well. Feinstein told The Times in December that she did not expect to make a final decision on re-election until the spring, but pressure mounted as the race to replace her moved forward anyway. The time has come, Feinstein told reporters outside the Senate chamber Tuesday, that there's time for all things under the sun. The White House was alerted to Feinstein's plan earlier Tuesday, according to a Feinstein aide. I have served with more U.S. Senators than just about anyone," President Biden said in a statement. I can honestly say that Dianne Feinstein is one of the very best. Feinstein will leave behind a Senate legacy that includes key roles in enacting the nation's only assault weapons ban, releasing documentation of the CIA's use of torture despite strong pushback from the intelligence community, and blazing a trail for female Senators. During her first Senate campaign in 1992, there were only two female senators. Today, there are 25. In November, she became the longest-serving female senator in U.S. history. Shortly after making her plans official, Feinstein gave a very heartwarming and a teary address to her fellow Senate Democrats in a closed-door lunch, said Senate Majority Leader Charles E. Schumer, Democrat of New York, adding that she spoke of her late husband Richard Bloom, who died last year. Schumer said she was greeted with a standing ovation that lasted minutes and minutes and minutes and demonstrated the love that our caucus and our country have for her. She was the leader on so many different issues, assault weapons, the environment, women's rights, Schumer said. She had passion that accompanied her detailed knowledge of the facts. Schumer was one of many fellow Democrats who paid tribute to her political career. He can't tell the story of california politics or the story of american politics without the trailblazing career of diane feinstein senator alex padilla democrat of california said Former house speaker nancy pelosi democrat of san francisco called feinstein a titan in the united states senate with a record that stands among the finest in history california governor gavin newsom called feinstein a powerful champion for california and california values on the on national stage for three decades Feinstein indicated tuesday that she hopes to build on that work before leaving washington i campaigned in 2018 on several priorities for california and the nation preventing and combating wildfires mitigating the effects of record-setting drought responding to the homelessness crisis and ensuring all americans have access to affordable and high quality health care she said in her statement Feinstein had long swatted back speculation that she would step down before the end of her term. Newsom fueled such talk in 2021 when he said in an interview that he would name a black woman to the job if Feinstein were to step down. In recent years, Feinstein faced mounting criticism that she was up for the demanding job of a senator. She faced scrutiny at times over confused comments she made to reporters and for her handling of the confirmation hearings of former President Trump's Supreme Court nominees Brett M. Kavanaugh and Amy Coney Barrett when she was the top Democrat on the Judiciary Committee. At the end of Barrett's hearing, Feinstein praised the committee chairman, Senator Lindsey Graham, Republican of South Carolina, for his handling of the process, rankling Democrats who were trying not to lend legitimacy to the rushed confirmation just days before the 2020 presidential election. Under pressure from progressives, Feinstein agreed to step down as the top Democrat on the committee, missing the chance to become the first woman to lead that panel after her party took control of the Senate in 2021. That uh, post went to Senator Richard J. Durbin of Illinois. This year, she was skipped over for the job of President Pro tempore of the Senate, a post that typically goes to the longest-serving senator of the majority party. Would have placed her in the presidential line of succession after House Speaker Kevin McCarthy, Republican of Bakersfield. Patty Murray, Democrat of Washington, is the current Senate President Pro tempore. Feinstein repeatedly balked at suggestions that her age prevented her from doing the job effectively. A centrist whose bipartisanship increasingly appeared to be from a bygone era and often frustrated progressives, Feinstein is almost certain to be replaced by someone more liberal. Californians have soured on her performance in recent years. Only 30% of the state's voters approved of her job performance as of early last year, according to a poll conducted by the UC Berkeley Institute of Governmental Studies and co-sponsored by the Los Angeles Times, and marked the lowest job performance rating of her Senate career. First elected in 1992, the year of Anita Hill's sexual harassment testimony, before an all-male Judiciary Committee shined a spotlight on the lack of female representation in Congress, Feinstein would go on to build a legacy on the panel as well as the Senate Intelligence Committee. In 1994, with memories of the 1978 slangs of then San Francisco Mayor George Moscone and Supervisor Harvey Milk on her mind, Feinstein shepherded to enact uh, the uh, the assault weapons ban, an issue that has remained a priority to her long after the 10-year ban expired. Perhaps the defining moment of her her policy career was the release of an executive summary of classified CIA report detailing uh, the agency's use of torture. For five years, she battled the George W. Bush administration, the Obama administration, and the intelligence community to release an extensive declassified summary of the CIA's 67-page report on its so-called enhanced interrogation techniques. After months of haggling over whether the report should be made public, Feinstein released it in late 2014, saying the CIA had engaged in activities that were a stain on our values and our history. The report found that the CIA's secret detention and interrogation program had produced false confessions and fabricated information. It also concluded that the use of torture had produced no useful intelligence about imminent terrorist attacks. History will judge us by our commitment to do a just society governed by law and the willingness to face an ugly truth and say, never again, Feinstein said upon the summary's release. That was Feinstein to Retire at the End of Her Term by Jennifer Habercorn from the Los Angeles Times Wednesday, February 15, 2023. Time staff writers Nolan D. McCaskill and Aaron B. Logan contributed to this report. All right, here is a follow-up article from the same Los Angeles Times, Wednesday, February 15, 2023. Standing Among the Golden State's Greats by Mark Z. Baraback. In the long arc of California history among giant Redwood Giants like Hiram Johnson, Earl Warren, and Ronald Reagan, Pat and Jerry Brown, one name stands out, Diane Feinstein. She is not only the state's longest-serving U.S. senator, She's one of the most meaningful and accomplished lawmakers California ever, Californians ever put in office. It's not just her legislative achievements in areas like environmental protection and gun control that distinguish Feinstein's more than a half a century-long public career. Just as significant, if not more, is the path she helped blaze for women in politics, first by seeking and winning elected office, and then, once empowered, by showing that a woman could more than hold her own among the far greater number of men jostling around her, as San Francisco mayor, a well thrust upon her by the assassination of her predecessor, Feinstein stated herself and then braced the city at a time it seemed at a time it seemed ready to slip into axis. As a senator in Washington, she was an important voice on issues such as crime, national defense, and. Uh, intelligence including the cia's detention and interrogation practices all of which were once seen as beyond the purview of a female lawmaker if you go back 30 40 years women went on the education committee or maybe dealt with health care whatever little bone was thrown their way said sherry bebbets Jeffy, a retired u.s political science professor and longtime student of government and california politics Diana didn't follow the typical path, Beppich said. She didn't let herself get pigeonholed as a woman senator. Bowing to age and political reality, the 89-year-old Feinstein made the right decision Tuesday in announcing she would stand aside and not seek re-election to a sixth full term. It was time. The last few years have not been kind to Feinstein, filled as they were with repeated accounts of her obvious physical and cognitive decline. Although she performed adequately enough, thanks to your resourceful staff work, California deserves better. So does Feinstein. As she run again, she would surely have lost to one of the younger, more vigorous cont- uh, contestants lining up to replace her, providing a sad coda to a remarkable career. Another lo- no less significant reason that Feinstein faced certain defeat is the passing of a political style and era that, to her detriment, she came very much to embody. Never a favorite of the political left, in San Francisco Francisco, she was considered a conservative and, worse, mocked as a prig. Feinstein routinely infuriated fellow Democrats by reaching across the aisle to work with Republicans. In true fashion, she made yet another pitch for the virtues of good old-fashioned bipartisanship as she stood aside Tuesday. Even with a divided Congress, we can still pass bills that will improve lives, Feinstein said in a written statement announcing her decision. Worse still, performative politics, the showy stump, the devastating tweet, the viral moment uh, that have uh, become the campaign's coin of the realm, has never been Feinstein's way. Even before she was kept out of sight by nervous handlers, the senator was more apt to be found burrowed in a briefing book or plowing through a mountain of research than making news on the cable, uh, the cable, the cable chat, chat show circuit. It would be tragic and wrong, however, to remember Feinstein as some kind of relic, as if we remembered William, Willie Mays, another San Francisco icon, only for the final years he spent stumbling around the outfield. Yeah, okay, maybe she hung on too long, said Stanford's Bruce Kane, another political scientist who followed Feinstein's career over the decades. But she's right up there with Nancy Pelosi and Jerry Brown, in a class by themselves in their ability to keep working productively over many decades and through all the changes in the political system. There are deeply uh, cinematic aspects to Feinstein's career which could have easily been conceived in Hollywood overcoming an abusive childhood and being widowed at a young age, suffering uh, heartbreaking political loss, including two unsuccessful tries for San Francisco mayor. She was planning on quitting politics for good in November 1978 when Mayor George Moscone was shot and killed along with Harvey Milk, Feinstein's colleague on the Board of Supervisors. As president of the board, Feinstein assumed the job that long exceeded her grasp. There was more drama more disappointment. Feinstein was the target of two assassination attempts and a failed mayoral recall. She was considered, then passed over, for the Democratic vice presidential nomination in 1984. Six years later, Feinstein made history as the Democratic nominee for California governor, losing narrowly to Republican Pete Wilson. She made history again in 1992 when she was elected to the Senate alongside Barbara Boxer. The two were California's first female senators. There were questions how Feinstein used to be used to being in charge as chief executive and an imperious one at that would function as one of a hundred senators, but she proved a highly adept negotiator and lawmaker. She passed, among other legislation, a landmark de- uh, desert protection bill that had been stalled before she strived before she arrived and put through a 10-year ban on assault-style weapons in the face of fierce opposition by the National Rifle Association and its political allies. President George W. Bush allowed the law to lapse in 2004. Earlier this week, as the Beltway burbled with speculation about California's Senate seat, the liberal commentator Jonathan Capehart shared his thoughts on Twitter. There was a way out for Feinstein that would also allow her to make history, he wrote. She could she could resign the seat now and allow Governor Newsom to fulfill his promise to appoint a black woman to succeed her, But that misses the point. Feinstein has already made history multiple times over. Nothing that's happened in recent years will change that or take away from all that she has accomplished. That was Among the Golden State's Greats by Mark Z. Baraback from the Los Angeles Times for Wednesday, February 15, 2023. All right, here is another one on her from the California section of the Los Angeles Times, Thursday, February 16, 2023. A high-achieving senator who irked the ideologues by George Skelton in Sacramento. Senator Dianne Feinstein, California's most accomplished senator, became an anachronism. She practiced civility and compromise with the other side. That's how the state's first female senator has gotten so many important things done in an increasingly antagonistic political world. It's the way major legislation used to be passed before social media and cable news provided wide-ranging platforms for demagogues and nurtured the ideological ideological extremes on both sides. Now civility and compromises are considered too old-fashioned, particularly among many younger political activists. Republican voters in California never re- have really accepted the Democrat, who is California's longest-serving senator, 30 years, and, the current, and currently the old, Senate's oldest member. That's largely, I suspect, because her hometown is uber-liberal San Francisco. And polarized progressives of her own party have become increasingly intolerant of the pragmatic centrist, contending she's too soft and out of touch with today's smashmouth politics. I'd like to work in a bipartisan way, she told me two years ago. Some people on the left don't like that, but that's what the Senate should do. It benefits people. One of her most inexcusable sins was hugging a Republican. Okay, maybe it wasn't the smartest gesture given the heated political climate. She was the top a Democrat on the Senate Judiciary Committee in 2020, when President Trump's third Supreme Court nominee, conservative Amy Coney Barrett, was for, up for confirmation, Feinstein was criticized by liberals for alleged weak uh, an alleged weak performance. But there was there was nothing a, any Democrat could have done to block Barrett from the court. Republicans controlled the Senate. After the hearings concluded. Feinstein congratulated committee chairman Lindsey Graham, Republican of South Carolina, for that day's well-run session. I shook his hand and he gave me a hug and I got holy hell, she told me later. If I can't have good relationships with someone simply because they're a Republican, that's not good. The whole hugging controversy seemed bizarre. Watch any professional basketball or football game and you'll see the players embracing after a contest. That's no longer allowed at America's most important game. Government. Another Feinstein sin publicly hoping that the Republican president would get his act together and become a good leader. Sure, it was the offensive no class Donald Trump, but we have really become have we become so polarized that it's taboo to wish an American president well? Look, this man is going to be president, most likely for the rest of this term, she told the San Francisco Commonwealth Club in 2017, eight months into Trump's presidency. I think we have to have some patience. I just hope he has the ability to learn and to change, and if he does, he can be a good president. And that is my hope. Booze from the audience. You have to be able to get things done, she told the crowd. You have to work with people, and a punch in the nose isn't going to do it. But Trump became more abysmal, and Feinstein often denounced his policies, which included trying to drill for oil off the California coast, implementing a hateful, deportation program and, placing and placating American Nazis. Yet, she was considered too soft. Soft? Battling the CIA and the Intelligence Committee for years to expose the un-American torture of terrorism suspects was hardly soft. Neither was fighting the gun lobby to pass a 10-year federal ban on assault weapons. She paid a political price for that. One moment will... Uh, Long be etched in my memory from Feinstein's 1994 re-election campaign that she barely won. She was in Chico. A man in jeans and a girl of around eight were on a sidewalk. As Feinstein stepped from her car a few feet away, the man took the child by her hand and knelt uh, knelt and pointed a finger. Look, he told the girl, that's what you don't want to grow up to be like. A U.S. senator... An object of hate in his his father's eye was no role model for his young daughter. How warped was that? A white male was among scores of gun worshippers protesting the senator's assault weapons ban. Feinstein's greatest sin, of course, was growing old. She's 89 and suffers memory lapses and has been widely reported. I don't feel my cognitive abilities have diminished, she said in December 2020 when I asked her about it. No, not really. Do I forget something sometimes? Quite possibly. But it apparently has gotten worse. She was under pressure from party activists and pundits to resign or at least announce she won't run for a sixth term. I'm guessing she didn't need the pressure. She's a realist. On Tuesday, Feinstein announced what was anticipated. She'll serve out her term and retire at the end of next year. The time has come, she told reporters outside the Senate chamber. There's time for all things under the sun. As always, she'll be aided by a skilled, loyal staff. She drives them hard. She's a constant manager, a real stickler for details and doing her homework. And she insists on everyone else doing their homework, said Gil Durant, reformist former Senate press secretary and a journalist. Most peop- uh, He added, Most people I know who are senior staffers have deep respect for her. There's a difference between demanding and demeaning. Former political writer Jerry Roberts, who wrote Feinstein's biography that centered on her tenure as San Francisco's first female mayor, said when she started her career, she was a raven-haired beauty, and everyone thought of her as a show horse. But she was a workhorse. All she cared about was the work, figuring out how to fix stuff. We have a great shortage of that in California these days. Thankfully, she decided to finish out her term rather than resign. So millions of California voters will choose her replacement, not one governor. That was a high-achieving senator who irked the ideologues by George Skelton in Sacramento. From the California section of the Los Angeles Times, Thursday, February 16, 2023. Okay, we'll depart from that, and we'll go on to this article from the business section of the Los Angeles Times, Friday, February 17, 2023. FTX Founders Bail Agreement in Jeopardy. Bankman fried has been using a VPN and talking to potential witnesses, prosecutors seeking new limits, say, by Kiera Feldman. Sam Bankman fried could be in danger of returning to jail after a bail hearing at which the judge overseeing his case expressed skepticism about whether the FTX founder could be trusted to remain at home with access to the Internet while awaiting trial. At the Thursday hearing, U.S. District Judge Lewis Kaplan suggested that Bankman Freed, who was under indictment on charges of fraud and money laundering, had exploited the conditions of his home arrest to contact and seek to influence the testimony of potential witnesses. He also implied that he didn't believe Bankman Freed's explanation for his use of a virtual private network, or VPN, a technology that makes it possible to conceal Internet activity. Prosecutors are seeking to tighten the terms of Bankman-Fried's release, but so far have not sought to have his his bail revoked. But Kaplan implied he thought they should. You're putting an awful lot of trust in him, aren't you, he said, and made it clear that he might revoke bail if proposals on new new terms don't satisfy his concerns. A representative of Bankman-Fried declined to comment. In court filings, the FTX founder's attorney said that he used a VPN to watch the Super Bowl and other NFL games. Meanwhile, court documents unsealed Wednesday revealed that Begman-Fried's bail was backed by two Stanford University academics. Stanford Law School Dean Emeritus Larry Kramer signed a bond pledging to pay $500,000 if Begman-Fried violated the terms of his bail and Stanford senior research scientist Andrea Paptki signed a bond for 200000 The revelation of the academics' names adds to the public ties between the embattled crypto mogul and the Palo Alto University. Previously, the Times reported that Bankman Fried's $250 million bail bond was secured by his parents' faculty home on land that they rent from Stanford. Joe Bankman, and Barbara Fried have been close friends of my wife and I since the mid-90s," Kramer wrote in a statement. During the past two years, while my family faced a harrowing battle with cancer, they have been the truest of friends, bringing food, providing moral support, and frequently stepping in at a moment's notice to help. In turn, we have sought to support them as they face their own crisis. My actions are in my personal capacity. And I have no business dealings or interest in this matter other than to help our loyal and steadfast friends," he added. Papich did not respond to her request for comment. Our representative of Bankman-Fried declined to comment. Stanford did not respond to her request for comment. Previously, our representative said the university's permission was not needed to use the Stanford Faculty House for Bankman-Fried's bail. Bankman-Fried used a VPN on at least two occasions, court filings show. Bankman-Fried's attorneys said in a court filing that their client used a VPN to access an NFL Game Pass international subscription to watch the Super Bowl on February 12th and on January 29th to watch the AFC and NFC Championship games. All three football games were available for free on regular television. The Super Bowl and the NFC games were broadcast on Fox and the AFC game was on CBS. Previously, the court added several prohibitions on Bankman-Fried pending the outcome of bail negotiations. Bankman-Fried may not use signal and encrypted chat programs, and he is barred from contacting current or former employees of FTX or Alameda Research, the hedge fund tied to the FTX, but can contact immediate family members. On January 15. Bankman Fried contacted a potential witness over Signal writing that he would really love for us to have a constructive relationship, use each other as resources when possible, or at least vet things with each other. In a court filing Wednesday, prosecutors expressed alarm that Bankman-Fried used a VPN after the court expressed concern about the use of encrypted channels beyond those identified by the government in its proposed bail conditions and once he was already on notice about the government's concerns regarding encrypted and undetectable electronic activity prosecutors argued that uh, bankman freed had used signal for purposes of evading law enforcement detention detection bankman freed's attorney said in court filings that his use of signal and a vpn had no improper purpose bankman freed's trial is to begin in October. Meanwhile, the terms of his bail require, among other things, that he surrender his passport, wear an electronic monitoring device, and remain at his parents' home. A far cry from federal detention, he will be confined to a five-bedroom, three-bathroom house that is slightly more than 3,000 square feet on a nearly an acre lot with a pool and a hot tub records show. Alison Siegler, A professor at the University of Chicago Law School said for Bankman Free to remain uh, under house arrest rather than in jail reflected a pattern of judges and prosecutors treating privileged people and those charged with white collar offenses different than those without means or status. In the 20 years I spent as a federal public defender, I can't recall a single case where the government levied these kinds of serious allegations and then asked the judge to keep a client out rather than moving to revoke the bond and lock the client in jail, Ziegler said. That was FTX Founders Bail Agreement in Jeopardy by Kira Feldman from the Business Section of the Los Angeles Times, Friday, February 17, 2023. Bloomberg was used in compiling this report. We got a couple of uh, local stories here. Uh, this first one is from the los angeles times for sunday february 12 2023 wrongful death suit filed in overdose melissa bauman's family claim rehab center didn't routinely check in on her by nathan solis melissa bauman who had grappled with drug addiction for years was ready to get clean when she called her mother for help last summer kari Ryder said her 24 year old daughter had started using fentanyl a highly potent synthetic uh, uh, opioid. The two agreed that Bauman should get help at a sobering center. A few days after Bauman checked into a Riverside County Rehab Center, Ryder learned that her daughter was found dead in her dorm room. Bauman died from an apparent overdose, according to a wrongful death lawsuit filed against the facility Wednesday. I dropped her off on Saturday evening, I saw her Sunday and Monday, uh, Ryder said, then she was gone early Tuesday morning. Bama was sleepy the last time they saw each other, but she gave her mom a kiss on her cheek, Ryder said. Before they parted, Bama and Ryder held parts of a plush heart uh, her mother had brought her. I would hold one half and she would hold the other, Ryder said. She held it and smiled. I told her I love her and I gave her a kiss. I told her, make good choices, and then I left. That was the last time she saw her daughter alive. Ryder claims the operators at the Arlington Recovery Community and Sobering Center falsified logs to make it appear that the staff regularly checked in on Bauman while she was a, pa- a patient. MFI Recovery, the operators at the center did not immediately respond to her request for comment. Bauman had a long history of using methamphetamine, heroin, and fentanyl, but she was cleaned for a short time before she relapsed. A family placed Bauman in the custodial care of MFI recovery, the lawsuit says. Industry standards for a sobering center require staff to check on a patient like Bauman every 30 minutes to make sure she's in stable condition, according to the complaint. Those check-ins were recorded in a staff observation log and provided to investigators after Bauman's death. There was at least one entry that showed staff were 20 minutes late for a checkup. the complaint said. A detective with the Riverside Police Department reviewed surveillance uh, footage of Bauman's room and it showed that staff did not check in on her as recorded in the logs. The logs claim that staff checked in on her at 3.38 a.m. and 4.59 a.m., but the video surveillance showed that that was not true, according to the complaint. Bauman was found dead shortly before 6 a.m. The county coroner said Bauman died from an accidental overdose of fentanyl. Ryder claims the observation logs were modified two months after Bauman's death. She filed her complaint on behalf of her daughter against MFI Recovery and Riverside County for claims of abuse and neglect. The family's attorney, Elon Zexter, said the county is named in the lawsuit because it was aware of numerous complaints by other individuals who received care at the facility. Riverside County ended its contact with MFI Recovery in December just as the California Department of Healthcare Services closed a portion of the center that operated the residential treatment program. The Arlington Recovery, Community, and Sobering Center is listed as having a temporary suspension status. That was wrongful death suit filed in overdose by Nathan Solis from the Los Angeles Times, Sunday, February 12, 2023. Alright, here is another one. From the California section of the Los Angeles Times, Friday, February 17, 2023, suspect held in shootings in Jewish district by Terry Castleman, Richard Winton, and Brittany Mejia. The Los Angeles Police Department has arrested a suspect in the shootings of two men outside synagogues in the Pico-Robertson neighborhood of L.A. over the last two days. The man has a history of animus toward the Jewish community, law enforcement sources told the Times. In a statement late Thursday, the LAPD said that the facts of the case led to the crime being investigated as a hate crime. For the last two days, the community has been on edge and continues to be on edge even with the arrest of a suspect, said Ariella Lowenstein, Deputy Regional Director of the Anti-Defamation League Los Angeles. Anytime that a community is targeted because of who they are, and in this case who they worship and being Jewish, it's always terrifying. The league's regional director, Jeffrey I. Abrams, said in a statement Thursday night, We are aware that the case is being investigated as a hate crime and look forward to learning more about a possibly hate-driven motive. The the first shooting occurred around 10 a.m. Wednesday near the intersection of Shenandoah and Cachillo Streets, when a man in his 40s was shot in the back while walking to his vehicle, authorities said. The second was around 8.30 a.m. Thursday near Pickford and South Bedford Streets, about two blocks away, when a man walking home was shot in the arm. Both victims survived the attacks. The men described seeing a male suspect, said Police Lieutenant Park, a spokesperson for the LAPD who declined to give his first name. Authorities tracked the suspect to Riverside County, and investigators began working with federal and regional partners to find him, sources said. It was taken into custody around 5.45 p.m. Thursday. Detectives recovered several items of evidence, including a rifle and a handgun. Councilmember Katie Young Yaroslavsky, whose district includes Pika Robertson, said earlier Thursday that she was concerned by the shootings, which coincided with a rise in anti-Semitic attacks in recent months. Police said that, in an abundance of caution, there would be increased police protect presence and patrols around Jewish places of worship and surrounding neighborhoods throughout the, uh, throughout the weekend. There was suspect held in shootings in Jewish District by Tara Castleman, Richard Winton, and Brittany Bahia from the California section of the Los Angeles Times, Friday, February 17, 2023. Okay, let's start going into some entertainment news here. This first one is from the calendar section of the Los Angeles Times, Sunday, February 12, 2023. Rick Rubin wants you to be a smash hit by Mark Bowden. In 1984, Ronald Reagan was president. Beverly Hills Cop topped the box office, and Rick Rubin, a Jewish NYU student with a love for hard rock, punk, and rap, joined forces with black music manager Russell Simmons to give fledgling Death Jam Recordings the creative boost it needed. To become a hip hop juggernaut his dorm room initially served as Jeff jams headquarters. Over the next few years, uh, Rubin produced or executive produced several hip hop classics, including radio by LL Cool J racing hell by run DMC License to ill by the Beastie Boys and public enemies, it takes a nation of millions to hold us back. Rubin's minimalist, sparse production style, combined with the mellow vibes, sensitivity, and unflagging encouragement he brought to the studio helped these and other artists unleash their creativity. In 1988, he left Def Jam and headed to LA in search of fresh sounds and a new beginning. If the story had ended there, Reuben would still go down as one of the music's, one of music's most important producers, but he was just getting started. Over four decades, Ruben has produced everyone, from the Red Hot Chili Peppers to Slayer to Tom Petty. Ruben revived Johnny Cash's flagging career over the course of several albums that stripped the Man in Black down to his emotional core. Along the way, the shaggy-bearded, zen-like impresario has picked up nine Grammy Awards, most, recent, most recently for his work with The Strokes. Rolling Stone has named him the most successful producer in any genre. Now Reuben has distilled his hand-earned wisdom into a book about creativity and how to access, nurture, and liberate it in the service of great art. For the most part, the creative act, a way of being, succeeds on these terms, although readers can find many of the same ideas in a myriad self-help books, business and spiritual books. The difference is in the telling, which with the assistance of writer Neil Strauss is clear, convincing and engaging. To Rubin, art is the ultimate form of self-actualization, a noble calling that enriches the soul. The reason we're alive is to express ourselves in the world, Rubin writes, and creating art may be the most effective and beautiful method of doing so. So how does an artist move from conception to creation? Rubin methodically lays out the process, offering a mixture of encouragement, inspiration, and tips. Artists of all types, according to Rubin, should open their senses to the world to take in information to gather seeds that can germinate into an idea. Meditation, communion with nature, and exercise could help open those pathways. Artists should trust their instincts and feel free to experiment with form, function, materials, and differing, view- differing viewpoints. They can steep themselves in great works for stimulation and even try to emulate them to find a new way of expressing themselves. Some Rubin rules, tune out n- uh, naysayers, avoid chasing money or fame, aim for authenticity. Then there are practices best uh, avoided. Fear of criticism, attachment to a commercial result, competing with past work, time and resources const- resource constraints, the aspiration of wanting to change the world and any story beyond i want to make the best thing that i can make whatever it is are all undermining forces in the quest for greatness he writes throughout the creative act ruben offers useful advice if an artist feels stuck for instance he suggests they could work around the problem to maintain forward momentum a bridge is easier to build when it's clear what's on either side of it he says similarly an artist might tap into their subconscious by keeping a pen and paper next to the bed to record dreams as soon as they wake up. Rubin's musings mostly hit the mark. However, he occasionally sounds more like a cool graduate student of philosophy than the musical and spiritual guru that touted by his admirers. Take the stereotypical tortured artist, whom Ruben seems to romanticize. He excuses their selfishness because their needs as a creator come first. Along the same lines, Rubin suggests that artists' ability to see and feel things others don't—both a blessing and a curse, in his opinion—can make creators feel alienated and alone. True perhaps, but only affluent artists—multi-millionaire record producers, for example—have the money and time to uh, marinate in their own misery as they chase that elusive muse. Rubin also imitates that artist, uh, pos- that in- intimates that artists possess superpowers. Whether we know it or not, we're a conduit for the universe. Material is allowed through us, he writes. If we are a clear channel, our intention reflects the intention of the cosmos. Right on, man. In the end, Rubin has written a fascinating book infused with deep thoughts, insights, and yes, lots and lots of creativity. Although it would have benefited from more personal anecdotes, the creative act uh, merits a close read with an open mind, body, and soul. That was Rick Rubin Wants You to Be a Smash Hit by Mark Ballin from the Calendar section of the Los Angeles Times, Sunday, February 12, 2023. Ballin, a former LA Times reporter, teaches an advanced writing class at USC. He lives in Fullerton. All right, and here is something from the calendar section of the Los Angeles Times, uh, Sunday, February 12, 2023, from Near Death to Act 3. Bob Dylan almost died in 1997. Then he released Time Out of Mine, a new box set of the album that revived his career underscores his latest vitality by Mikhail Wood, pop music critic. A quarter of a century ago, Bob Dylan found vital new life in an album about death's inexorable approach. I'm walking through streets that are dead," the rock and roll legend sang, wheezed, really, right at the top of Time Out of Mine, which came out in the fall of 1997 to end the longest break he'd ever taken from releasing original material. Dylan, then 56, hadn't been silent in years since the 1990s Coolly received uh, Under the Red Sky. He put out two collections of folk and blues standards and had re-established himself as a Cantonist live act on what became to be known as the never-ending tour. He'd even followed Paul McCartney and Neil Young and Tony Bennett onto MTV's hit Unplugs. Yet, uh, recording new tunes of his own, he told the interviewers at the time no longer held much appeal, which led many to wonder if the songwriter who changed rock, who convinced the world, for better or for worse, to take rock seriously, had finally run out of things to say. Then came time out of mind. Produced by Daniel Lanoy, who worked with Dylan on 1989's Oh Mercy and with U2 and Peter Gabriel, the 11-track LP sent stark thoughts of headache and mortality against bleary blues-based arrangements performed live in the studio by a murderous row of players that included guitarist Bucky Baxter and Cindy Cashdoller, keyboardist Jim Dickinson and Augie Myers, and drummer Jim Kaitner and Brian Blade. The sound was lush, fervent, and slightly spooky with Dylan's voice in a state of glorious decay as he dispensed bleak atmospheric aphorisms like it's not dark yet, but it's getting there. And he was hospitalized with a potentially fatal heart infection shortly before the album's release only bolstered its apocalyptic vibe. The sonics and atmosphere that Bob and Daniel and the band put together are so haunting And so evocative of what he's singing about, says Bonnie Raitt, a lifelong Dylan Femme who covered two of the album's songs, the Strutting Million Miles and the Tender Standing in the Doorway, on her 2012 LP, Slipstream. It laid bare the whole spectrum of color of his voice, riveting and vulnerable and gritty. I just think it's one of his best records ever. Raitt isn't the only one. Dylan's first million seller since Slow Train Coming in 1979, Time Out of Mind* finished atop the Village Voice's Annual Paz & Jop* Critics Poll and was named Album of the Year at the 40th Grammy Awards. Dylan's first and only win in that prestigious category. Looking back, it's clear the record also marked the beginning of a third act in Dylan's career that's still playing out today, as he showed with with 2020's pulpy, rough, and rowdy ways and its accompanying world tour, which stopped last year, weeks after his 81st birthday at Hollywood's Pantages Theatre for a spellbinding few nights. Now a deluxe box set to chart Dylan's path to rejuvenation. Uh, The latest installment in his ongoing bootleg series of archival material, Fragments, Time Out of Mind Sessions 1996-97, offers five discs of outtakes, alternate versions, and live recordings of songs from Time Out of Mind, as well as a remix edition of the original album whose cuts include the 16-minute highlands and make you feel my love which has been covered by adele billy joel garth brooks michael Bublé, and pink among countless others in a typically Dylanesque move the crisp new mix of bootleg series veteran michael brower clears away some of Lanois' signature studio murk, besides the thing that it that is that helped listeners hear Dylan in a fresh way back in the late 90s. It's more of a singer-songwriter approach, Brower says of his take on Time Out of Mind, which features smoother, less processed lead vocals. Still, Brower adds, he was determined to maintain the integrity and essence of an iconic record. Dylan himself has expressed ambivalence about the album, telling Rolling Stone in 2001 that no Lone was swampy voodoo thing resulted in a sameness to the rhythms. Yet the box set's fascinating outtakes reveal Dylan's uh, search for a spark as he tries out different grooves, different licks, different chord progressions in songs such as "Love Sick," "Not Dark Yet," "Cold Irons Bound," and "Trying to Get to Heaven." The funky "Can't Wait" about a man desperate to recover the sweet love that we knew is alone presented seven, seven times on fragments, each with its own distinct flavor: one a little trippier, one a little swaggier, one a little more menacing. We didn't know what this album was going to be, Lanois tells the Times, recalling his explorations with Dylan on Time Out of Mind. But we had courage, and we believed in the people in the room. As historian Douglas Brinkley writes in Fragments fragments Linear Notes, Dylan likely started composing Time Out of Mind in the wake of the 1995 death of his close pal, Jerry Garcia of the Grateful Dead, Whose friend of the devil, Dylan performed affectionately at the Pantages. The next year, having written most of the uh, most of the tunes over the winter at his farm in Minnesota, he met with Lanois to discuss a possible re, uh, reunion affair. After After O' oh Mercy, the recording of which Dylan recounts in detail in his 2004 memoir Chronicles, Volume One. Given the friction of those sessions. Was Lennox Lennox surprised to get the call? Not really, he says. Oh, mercy was a soulful record, flawless in a certain way. But I gotta be honest with you, after that, Bob did a couple of things that just don't have it. Just didn't have it. The producer says he doesn't want to single out any of Dylan's subsequent collaborations by name. Let's say he was working with Don Quixote. It felt like calling Don Quixote and saying, what did you do? You responded to a party invitation, but you couldn't admit you never really got there. Under the Red Sky was produced by Don Was. You can say anything about me, Lanwa continues, but I'm not a brown noser. I won't tell people what I think what, what they want to hear. I'll tell them the truth. So I think Bob felt he could trust that part of me, as and that's why we went back in. Dylan's first directive to Lanois was to study his favorite old blues and early rock records by the likes of Charlie Patton, Little Walter, and Little Willie John, records that are dripping in sweat and that have a sense of unfolding discovery, as Lanois puts it. Demo sessions began at Lanois's makeshift studio in a converted movie theater in Oxnard, not far from Dylan's home on Malibu's Point Doom. The place was dripping in vibes, Lanois says of the theater, where he later cut Willie Nelson's 1998 album, Tit titro It has a vending machine with wax lips in it, and we discovered hundreds of old Mexican movie posters in the projector room that we hung up on in the popcorn area. Bob loves old posters. Blade, who played on Emmylou Harris's Lanois-produced Wrecking Ball, and who's also who also who's also collaborated with Joni Mitchell, remembers driving up to Oxnard one day and jamming with Dylan and Lenoir on the Scottish folk song Water The Water Is Rising. Bob was really warm and funny and open to talk, Blake says. He was wondering if I'd played with Little Richard, which I found interesting and hilarious. I was like, no, but I'd love to. Dylan soon moved to the sessions to Soon moved the sessions to Criteria Studios in Miami, where Lanois convened a group of more than a dozen players, including old hands like bassist Tony Garnier and folks new to the Dylan fold like Dickinson, the seasoned Memphis producer and instrumentalist who died in 2009. As he had in Oxnard, Dylan peppered the musicians with questions about the pioneers with whom they may or may not have played. Says uh, says Dickinson's son Luther, a musician himself with the North Mississippi All-Stars and the Black Crows, first day at Criteria, my dad's in the parking lot lighting up a joint. And Dylan walks straight up to him and starts asking about Sleepy Sleepy John Estes. According to Blade, the band was arranged in the studio in a massive circle, with everyone able to see everyone else, though there was never any discussion or allocations of duties. No breakdown of what was going to happen, the drummer says. Lanois advised the players to envision Dylan as a train running down a track and themselves as the scenery rolling by. We see a cactus, then a dog, then a hobo, then a disintegrated monument, then a rainstorm, he says. You're the cactus, and a cactus doesn't play something it it played the night before. Indeed, Dylan would tweak not just the melody or the temp or the lyrics between two takes of a given song, but also change the key, as you can hear in one of those renditions of Can't Wait, which starts with a bit of studio chatter. How about B-flat, Dylan asks. I don't think anybody reworks things as radically as Bob does, says Ray. He's alone in that. He also sprang new material on the room. Lanois says Dylan pulled Make You Feel, My Love, out of nowhere, which surprised the hell out of me. I knew all the songs because I'd worked up the band uh, I worked up the band before Bob even got to Miami and I'd never heard that. The producer was sure what to think wasn't sure what to think of the tune I, uh, a more conventional uh, conventional and sentimental number than others on time out of mind. It's one of the most used up chord sequences in the history of music, Lanois says of Make You Feels descending progression, and maybe a little bit corny, like something out of Mary Poppins. But sometimes you just you gotta just get out of the way, so that's what I did. Other times he didn't. The tensions involved in the making of Oh Mercy flared up again at Criteria Studios, with Lanois famously smashing a guitar at one point in frustration. And the singer wasn't to be outdone. Dad told me that Dylan picked up a do- dobro and was swinging it around in a circle over his head. Luther Dickinson said with a laugh, he said that he could feel the wind brushing past his face. Yet the volatile chemistry infused the music with feeling. Blade heard the album as a balance struck with great perfection. It's ecstatic and it's contemplative. There's urgency and there's stillness, he says. The known and the unknown, it all exists in time out of mind. The LP's triumph at the Grammys, where it beat Radiohead's OK Computer for Album of the Year, and where Dylan's performance of Lovesick was memorably interrupted by a shirtless dancer with soy bomb scrawled across his chest, gave Lanois a sense of reassurance about the music industry. It took balls to celebrate such a dirty record in a time of such cleanliness, he says. Though Dylan hasn't used a producer since Time Out of Mine, instead running his sessions himself under the pseudonym Jack Frost, his records have stayed in touch with the essential earthiness he got from uh, in the studio with Lanois. Asked if the two still talk, Lanois said Dylan came over to his place after he'd finished one of the standards collections he released in the mid-2010s. He wanted me, he wanted me to hear it. So I made some coffee, and before he played a, a song, he talked for two hours, Lanois says, adding that Dylan told him he felt he had a responsibility to the old music because it came from innocent times. He says some of these songs were written by soldiers who were in World War Two and they were just sending a letter of song to a lover. That's rare these days, Lanois says. Because we've all lived so much, we all know everything, and we all know everything. Not the least doom-attuned narrator of Time Out of Mind. But making that record, we have found innocent somehow. That was From Near Death to Act 3 by Mikhail Wood, pop music critic. From the calendar section of the Los Angeles Times, Sunday, February 12, 2023. Okay, so now here's something. From the calendar section of the Los Angeles Times, Sunday, February 12, 2023. A historian's take on the pull of exercise. Scholar and fitness instructor Natalia Malin petrezala breaks down the politics of working out by Meredith Blake. At a time when the president ha- is an avowed pelotonin enthusiast, corporate bigwits flaunt their treadmill desks and even your Aunt, Linda's tracks, and your Aunt Linda tracks her steps on a Fitbit. It's easy to, it's easy to imagine a fitness as forever intrinsic to American identity. But as historian Natalia melman Petrezella argues in her new book, Fit Nation, The Gains and Pains of America's Exercise Obsession, our collective attitude toward exercise has shifted dramatically over the last century. Once viewed as the dubious pastime of vain eccentrics, working out is now venerated as an essential part of a healthy lifestyle. At the same time, it's become, for many, an unaffordable luxury. A professor at the, New York School, at the New School in New York City, Petrezla is perhaps uniquely qualified to write about this subject. She's also a certified fitness instructor who once taught a class at Equinox called Intensati, high energy cardio with vocal affirmations, as she explained in a recent video chat. Like America as a whole, Petrezella was once wary of fitness. As a bookish adolescent in the 90s, she was mortally intimidated by anything physical or athletic. That all changed when she enrolled in a group fitness class. I was like, I don't know what this is, but it's where I want to be, she recalled. It felt so good. Petrozella taught middle school and eventually landed in academia, but also pursued a second career as a fitness instructor, a fact she was often reluctant to share with her scholarly colleagues. At the gym, though, Petrozella never really took off her historian's hat. I kept asking the question, how did this fitness culture come to be? Fit Nation covers more than a century of cultural history, from strongman Eugene Sandow showing off his rippling torso at the Chicago World's Fair in 1893 to the closing of gyms across the country during COVID-19. It identifies a massive shift in the later 20th century, when the public, increasingly more affluent and sedentary began to discover the value of yoga jogging and dance aerobics while petra visits many well-known names <clears throat> jack LaLanne, jazzercise jane fonda she also introduces less familiar personalities such as vic Tanney, whose gyms were outfitted with tropical fish tanks there's prob- there's plenty of kitsch including dig- uh, digressions <coughs> on workout tapes by debbie reynolds and adult film star tracy lords but also powerful stories about Rosa Parks' zeal for yoga and gay gym, gyms that became community havens during the AIDS crisis. Petrozella spoke to the Times about fitness inequality, potential political solutions, and what working up doesn't make you a neoliberal. The conversation has been edited for length and clarity. Question. Fitness is a subject that touches on so many crucial issues. Race, gender, class, sexuality. Why hasn't it been taken more seriously by historians? Answer. I think there are a few things going on. They have, to do, they have to do with scholarly disdain for bodily pursuits, particularly the ones that women do. We have a lot of enthusiasm for serious books about working-class consumer culture, but they're often about men. We love to talk about major league sports, Bruce Springsteen, and rock music, but like going to dance cardio? That, that gets dismissed. The scholarly world has also really bought into this notion that neoliberalism has taken over all aspects of American life. There are quite a few critics who are too quick to just dismiss the gym as part of that. You see smart critiques, but they tend to be like, this is just productivity culture, off hours. They overlook much more complicated, interesting, uh, and even empowering things that go on in these fitness contexts and not just for women. Answer. The first section of your book deals with American attitudes about what we now call fitness, which in the 19th and early 20th centuries was seen as suspect. Tell me about that. Answer. This was a time when to go and exercise deliberately was considered weird. American society had not bought into the idea that mind and body are connected and that working on your body is part of being a fully actualized human. If you were someone who was spending too much time working on your body, you were probably neglecting more important things. That was a really gendered set of assumptions, though. Men should be consumed with cerebral pursuits. A guy who's spending time working on his body in the company of other men? There's definitely something suspicious about him. For women, it's slightly different because it was considered normal for you to care what you look like. Even in the early 20th century, you have all these... Reducing salons, almost like proto-boutique fitnesses. But also, sweating is considered strange for women because what women or girls want—what uh, what woman or girl would want to be muscular? Ew. The science of the time said that exercising too vigorously would compromise your fertility. There's a long-standing myth that your uterus will fall out if you lift heavy weights or run too fast. Question. As you argue in the book, fitness is widely viewed as a worthwhile pursuit, yet for many, it's also an unattainable luxury, in part due to political failures. How do we fix this? Answer. The federal government is starting what effectively is a marketing campaign in the 50s and 60s. It's really important in changing sensibilities, but it doesn't actually change infrastructure or access in a way that would make make fitness uh, the human right it should be. My optimistic stance is that most people agree exercise is good for you. That is something that transcends political affiliation, but we need policies that invest in public recreation and fitness environments. That might seem obvious, but there's a host of other public things uh, which contribute to fitness inequality that we don't necessarily think of as related. Safe streets, better streetlights, labor policies that allow people to have more control over their time so they can actually make time to exercise question what role does southern california especially does california especially southern california play in the story of american fitness answer it is a place that has always been hospitable to different kinds of experimentation especially around health and spirituality it's a place where especially because of hollywood image is important those things really come together in the fitness world this is probably the east-coaster East Coast, of me romanticizing California a little bit, but I do think that geographically it's a place that has really sustained a connection to the idea of the self-made American dream. One of the reasons fitness culture becomes an American expert globally is because it's such a perfect arena to actualize these fantasies about self-fashionizing that we have. Another interesting piece is also technology. TV and VCRs are really important for spreading fitness culture. It's no accident that Jack LaLame makes his way from weird seedy muscle beach to TV. I cannot overestimate how important the VCR was in spreading the fitness culture. That is very much centered in Southern California with Jane Fonda and Richard Simmons and others jumping on that. Question. If you could go back in time and work out with anyone, anywhere, what would you choose? Answer. Can I tell you I've thought about this?" laughs. I would love to be at the opening ceremonies of the 1984 Olympics in L.A. doing Jazzercise. I think it's the only fitness brand that has ever been part of the opening ceremonies. I also would have loved to go to Richard Simmons' class. And that makes me so sad because I just missed it. Question. There are a lot of very colorful figures in this book. Were there any you were particularly captivated by? Answer. I would have loved to sit down uh, with pioneering weightlifter, Abby Pudgy Stockton, who was this woman among the dudes at Muscle Beach in the 30s and 40s. Bikinis barely existed at the time, so she has a bikini made for her to show off her muscles. She uh, develops a strength training gym for women and writes this column called Barbell, B-E-L-L-E, assuring women that beneath every lovely curve lies a muscle. To me, She just embodies so vividly that push-pull that's uh, still with us uh, where she's really breaking ground in terms of women's fitness, but constantly having to be like, don't worry, it'll make you pretty. Question. What's the strangest exercise fad you came across in your research? Answer. The weirdest thing was Stauffer's magic couch. It was this huge piece of furniture that people bought to have in their house, and it would shake you like one of those machines at a reducing salon. It was supposed to get you a new figure by christmas as one holiday ad said it was really remarkable to me that at a time when exercise was still sort of weird people would spend that much money and take up so much space in the house with this thing that was also a total scam question how do you approach your work in light of the growing movement for fat acceptance and body positivity answer the fat hating diet discourse is so loud in this world and has for so long been uh, uh, the dominant discourse in fitness environments that it's really important for our fitness professionals and consumers to be very uh, deliberate about resisting that. If I hear an instructor be like, bikini season is around the corner, I'm probably not going back. But we shouldn't throw out the baby in the bathwater. We shouldn't immediately say that weight loss is something no one should strive for or be allergic to, to talking about weight loss as a potentially health-promoting good, nor should we throw out fitness culture because weight loss is a part of it. Question. How do you see fitness evolving post-pandemic? Answer. I really hope that all of the health drama and trauma that we've been through in the last three years brings new urgency to the importance of preventive health, fitness being part of that. I hope the fitness inequality that's been intensified by the pandemic will be redressed with policies that prioritize pools, parks, and safe streets. In the past two to three years, people have almost gone on an elimination diet with fitness, where you take everything away and add things back into kind of figure out what's meaningful to you. My theory is we are going to see a renaissance of what I call destination fitness where people are very deliberate about going out into the world. That was a historian's take on the Poll of Exercise by Meredith Blake from the Los Angeles Times calendar section, Sunday, February 12, 2023. Okay, now we've got uh, two articles here from the uh, calendar section of the Los Angeles Times, Monday, February 13, 2023. Disney's Eiger isn't selling ESPN. It's still profitable, What Sports Unit Faces Challenges from Cord Cutters and Streaming by Stephen Battaglio. Walt Disney Company Chief Executive Bob Iger last week announced a major transformation for the entertainment media giant, raising a familiar question from Wall Street. What will happen to ESPN? Iger was clear that, despite clamoring from some investors, he has no plans to get rid of ESPN, the best-known sports media brand in the business, either by selling it or through a spinoff. But leading ESPN into the future won't be easy, as the company still must have must navigate the pressures of continued cord-cutting and escalating fees for the rights to air live sports. It also will face greater accountability. For the first time, it will start reporting financial results as a freestanding unit under its chairman, Jim, Jimmy Pitaro. ESPN res, ESPN's results have previously been disclosed as part of Disney's larger television network segment, eluding deep, detailed scrutiny. New status for ESPN follows Iger's announcement that he is targeting $5.5 billion in cost savings, largely from its content and marketing uh, divisions. Disney said it plans to achieve $3 billion in content savings, excluding sports, over the next few years. Iger told CNBC on Thursday, that ESPN will remain a part of the company as long as it continues to be profitable and it too needs to find a path that basically enables it to continue to deliver the kind of results that we'd like, to, like it to deliver. On Wednesday's call with an analyst, he swatted away speculation of an ESPN sale though we said such options had been reviewed in his absence. ESPN's exposure to consumers shifting away from traditional TV to streaming as well as escalating sports rights fees led several investors and analysts to suggest Disney should spin off the unit with some debt attached. Activist billionaire investor Dan Loeb of Third Point Capital was among the voices calling for an ESPN spin-off to help reduce Disney's debt load, but he eventually backed off. Such a concept seems stunning considering the stature of ESPN in the media industry. Back in 1995, when Disney merged with Capital City slash ABC, ESPN was considered the crown jewel in the acquisition, as it was the first stop in sports news and highlights in the uh, locomotive for a still-expanding cable business. Over time, the network added more must-have TV sports properties. Speaking in 2006, when it took over Monday Night Football from ABC, the franchise that launched the, the network that launched the franchise in 1970. ESPN's imp- importance in the cable bundle has long been reflected in the high fees it is able to command from pay TV providers. But with every consumer who cuts the cord, that revenue shrinks. While those TV subscription dollars have diminished, ESPN has faced pressure out on, cost, on the cost side. The rights fee for NFL Monday Night Football, already the priciest among the league's packages, increased by around 30% in the most recent deal with the league. The challenge is only expected to intensify as deep-pocketed tech giants such as Amazon, Apple, and Google are moving into sports to bolster their streaming businesses. Amazon established itself as a worthy NFL partner with Thursday Night Football. Apple has an exclusive Friday night package of Major major League Baseball games and every regular season Major League Soccer game. Google's YouTube is the new home of the NFL's Sunday ticket package that gives subscribers games from outside of their home markets. Iger has a a special affinity for ESPN having come through ABC Sports, which was eventually absorbed into the division. But he has long been clear-eyed about the realities facing the future of the traditional television business. When Iger was a top executive at ABC in the early 90s, he was candid that the decline of the broadcast networks was inevitable as emerging cable channels chipped away at their share of the audience. As the Disney chief who was struck at the first, who struck the first deal with Apple to distribute shows digitally, Iger was early to understand the impact streaming has had on the traditional media ecosystem. Years ago, Iger cited cord cutting and its impact on ESPN and an earnings call, which triggered a stock sell-off. In 2018, ESPN launched its own streaming service. Iger's belief did not change after he left Disney. As citizen Iger, he took an industry conference He told an industry conference in September that traditional TV is marching to a distinct precipice and is going to be pushed off. Analysts are hoping that Iger's pragmatic perspective will guide Disney's handling of ESPN. We urge Disney to embrace that realistic view and tactfully manage their investments in future sports rights, staffing and overheads to reflect that bearishness, analyst Michael Nathanson wrote. A report from Morgan Stanley analyst Benjamin Swinburne said that Disney's decision to report ESPN's individual financial performance indicates that Iger and Patara are confident that ESPN's power extends beyond the traditional TV business. ESPN executives have long believed the linear channel could succeed as a direct-to-consumer streaming uh, streaming offering. The unit already has 25 million consumers paying for the ESPN Plus service if cable can no longer provide the critical mass it needs to succeed. Feitaro also now controls ESPN Plus, which was previously under a controversial division that oversaw all distribution and streaming operations. ESPN reached 108 million consumers each month through its digital properties and social media, many of them younger people who are not watching traditional TV. By showing ESPN as a standalone business and inclusive of all its digital assets like ESPN+, Disney is likely of the view that the financial future of this business is brighter than the market assumes today, Swinburne said. ESPN has already displayed restraint in its sports rights negotiations. The company walked away from making a new deal with Major League Soccer, which is now behind the paywall of Apple TV+. ESPN will be tested when it goes into rights renewal discussions with the NBA. Its current deal is up in the 24-25 season, after the 24-25 season. Amazon and other tech companies are expected to compete vigorously for the package. But ESPN has a firm grasp on its expenses uh, going forward as many of the rights deals for major sports are locked up for well into the decade including the nfl major league baseball the nhl and college football if a company in the traditional tv business live sports events remain the strongest driver of big audiences that advertisers want to reach it while the rest of while the rest of linear television continued to face a slow decline last year, ESPN's ratings grew 8% overall and 14% in prime time. That was Disney's Iger Isn't Selling ESPN by Stephen Bataglio. And we've got this one right here. Same calendar section of the Los Angeles Times, Monday, February 13, 2023. He took us there with his genius songs. A fellow songwriter, Dynamo... Tells how Bert Bacharach was on his own mountain by Diane Warren, as told by Mikhail Wood. Bert Bacharach, who died Wednesday at age ninety four, created something that didn't exist before him a musical language all his own. It starts with those melodies which were unlike anything else you'd ever heard, with the unusual time signatures and the unique harmonic choices. I can remember when I was little, from my earliest memory, Those songs just seeped into my life. Close to you, raindrops keep falling on my head. This guy's in love with you. Alfie is maybe my favorite of all time. Nothing that's ever been written by anyone in the history of people writing songs that's as good as that. And let's give Hal David credit. The marriage of those genius melodies with David's lyrics genius unmatched. Think about some of the lines in Alfie. And if I own, and if only fools are kind, Alfie, then I guess it is wise to be cruel. How cool is that? And if life belongs only to the strong, Alfie, what rule will you lend? What will you lend on an old golden rule? It's so simple, but so profound. This is a really important thing. Barkarock's music was super complex, but you could sing along to it take I say a little prayer you know I'm thinking wow this has a 5-4 bar you're thinking this just feels right it was just natural me- natural meant to be he took something sophisticated and made it so simple that anybody could sing along to it that's not easy the chord changes where he went uh, me- me- melodically it was never where you expected it to go but always where you wanted it to go and when it did It was like oh this couldn't have gone anywhere else but only someone like backrock could take you there another favorite of mine is walk on by that song really influenced me because i've written a lot of songs about that thing where you don't want to show your feelings is it happy is it sad walk on by is the perfect version of that and i mean dion warwick's vocal just brilliant or dusty springfield on the look of love it's pop perfection All these songs were. And they created careers. Look at Dion, look at Herb Alpert, who wasn't really known as a singer before This Guy's In Love With You. These are the songs I grew up with. I grew up in LA in the Valley, when Top 40 Radio was really Top 40. They played everything, and so many of these songs were big hits. I constantly heard them on the radio. But also, remember that movie The Blob? I found out a few years ago that Bert Bacharach wrote the theme to the blob, and it sounds totally Bert Bacharachy when you listen to it. The other thing is, these songs had, a, had great concepts. I say a little prayer, one less bell to answer. What a great way of saying, I'm really happy that I don't have this guy in my life, but oh, wait, that's kind of a bummer, too. Or, A house is not a home. Think about how genius that is. No one ever looked at it that way. The trick to writing a great song and looking at it as if from an an angle that no one's looked at it before. And Bacharach and David, they did that all the time. I didn't know Bert well, but in 1987, I wrote a song with him and Carol Bayer Sager, with whom he also wrote some classic brilliant songs. The song we wrote together was called Heartbreak of Love, which Dionne Warwick did with June Pointer. I remember I was so nervous because I was gonna be in the room with one of my idols, and went up to his place three or four times. He was very methodical. Let's go to this part. I have no intentions, no attention spent, so I remember that being hard for me, but he was a super nice guy. Seemed really cool and humble. I loved what he's, when he sang his songs. Obviously, someone like Dion or Luther Vandross would have sung them better. But there was something beautiful and authentic about hearing him do his songs. It captured something that couldn't be captured by someone who didn't write them. The sign of a great song is that it can be interpreted many different ways. Think about Say a Little Prayer. Dion does the pop version, then Aretha Franklin does the soul version. Or Always Something There to Remind Me. Dion has has a hit with it, and then Naked Eyes, which was a great record too. He can take a long and you get, can take a song and do all kinds of different ways in all kinds of different styles but you can't do that only if the song is great and with Bacharach the songs were always great he was on his own mountain everybody who's a songwriter or a composer or an arranger idolized him and there'll never be another like him but the music doesn't die that's the beauty of the songs they'll always they'll always sound fresh they'll always be relevant as long as there are voices to sing they'll be singing his songs that was he took us there with his genius songs by diane warren as told by mikhail wood from the calendar section of the los angeles times monday february 13th 2023 diane warren is the prolific songwriter behind such pop smashes as celine dion's because you loved me aerosmith's i don't want to miss a thing leanne rhymes as how do i live and shares if i could turn back time a member of the songwriters hall of fame she's been nominated for 15 grammy awards and 14 oscars including a nod for original song at next month's 95th academy awards with applause from tell it like a woman and been named ascap's songwriter of the year six times okay so let's turn to jewishjournal.com and uh, from the culture section this is called a story told in song elizabeth graver's cantica graver's writing is beautiful lyrical and the embodiment of the cantica the song of the title by karen e h skinazzi february 16 2023 if you've been watching The Beauty Queen of Jerusalem, the romance-filled soap opera starring the Israeli heartthrob Michael Aloni that tells the colorful story of a Sephardic family in the midst of a changing country, indeed a changing world, in the first half of the 20th century, uh, you'll probably be dr- as drawn to Elizabeth Graver's latest novel, Cantica, as I was. Graver is a master at historical fiction. Her first novel, Unraveling, is set in mid-19th century Lowell, Massachusetts, amid the textile industry, and her previous novel, The End of the Point, which takes place in Ashant Point in Massachusetts Bay, offers a portrait of an affluent American family from World War II through the end of the 20th century. *Kantika*, which follows its characters through the years across the world, is arguably far more ambitious than her previous works and it is also, in my opinion, defter in character development than the series Beauty Queen, or the book on which it is based. Now forgive me for automatically comparing Beauty Queen to Kantika. I'm probably reinforcing dominance of normativity by suggesting all Jewish stories without Eastern European roots are actually the same story, a single glitter-drenched unicorn. But the truth is, Beauty Queen and Kantika have a lot in common. Both are female-centered, sprawling multi-generational novels about Ladino-speaking Jews that begin in the dusk of the Ottoman Empire and close in the English-speaking diaspora decades later. Both attempt to bring back uh, for the reader the sights, sounds, smells, and tastes of a distant past, one that has not received a great deal of coverage in Jewish literature. So, if you're a fan of Beauty Queen, if you enjoy the novel or the series' journey into virtually uh, uncharted J- uh, territory in Jewish culture, put Kantika at the top of your list, your reading list. You won't be disappointed. Graver's writing is beautiful, lyrical, and the embodiment of the Kantika, the song, of the title. When we first meet Graver's protagonist, Rebecca, she is singing to herself. And in a few short lines, Graver establishes the multilingual, multireligious cosmopolitan and yet concretely local and specific nature of Istanbul, then known as Constantinople, in 1907. Rebecca sings to the rhythm of the oars as the boat delivers her to school, and in school with the nuns, Tornes Vo'ye ver Jesus, and climbing ropes at Maccabee Gymnastics, we read, In wordless tunes, nonsense sounds, and ballads, in Ladino, French, and bits of Turkish, Hebrew, Greek, she sings as as on the street the lemon man sings lemons, the Bulgarians sing uh, pudding, the vegetable man sings eggplant, squash, and artichokes. Her father leads Rebecca to the Ark in the synagogue, and she sings to the men below and the women above, her voice as unwavering as the cushioned freedoms and unspeakable good fortune of her childhood. Still her grandmother sews a banjuk bead to the underside of every collar to ward off the evil eye. We learn about Istanbul, its water-based geography, its open-air culture of buying and selling, and its intersecting communities. We also learn about Rebecca herself. Rebecca attends a a Catholic school, a sign that Jews were not insular and also suggesting family wealth. She participates in Jewish sports, cl- sporting clubs, demonstrating mar- modernity—a modernity with a space for women and girls and communal allegiance. She speaks a medley of languages, chiefly Ladino, the Judeo-Spanish language of the Jews who were expelled from Spain during the Inquisition. She's part of a family that has a, a standing in the Jewish community. Not every man can take his young daughter up, the, up to the Ark. And despite her family's modernity and their religious observance, she adheres to local superstitious beliefs wearing a Turkish amulet for protection. Graver's characters and no doubt many details of their stories, particularly the hard facts, the migration, the professions, the marriages of children, derive directly from her own family history. In fact, Graver directly addresses her reader to explain the origin story of her novel a tape recording of her grandmother, Rebecca Levy, made in 1985. The result is the feeling that this book is authentic, a piece of transnational century-spanning Jewish history. The real photographs of Rebecca and her family members in Constantinople in the first quarter of the century, in Barcelona in the 1920s, in Havana in the 1930s, and New York in er, in the years that follow that front each chapter strengthened that feeling. We navigate through Cantica a very personal history. The family's finances influenced their transnational trajectory as much as national and international politics. And the Spanish Civil War is never mentioned, despite their living through it, presumably because it had little impact on the family? I think these idiosyncrasies are a strong advantage of the novel. After all, history plays out differently for everyone. But being beholden to the historical record, even the family one, has its challenges. Reading kantika I wanted to stay with Rebecca until the end of the novel. Her character is determined, feisty, and bold. Her story is captivating. But as we move closer and closer to our own time, other voices clamor to be heard. And Rebecca's voice gives way to her stepdaughters and her sons, which alternate with Rebecca's. I see why Graver wants to imagine the lives of her uncle and aunt. They, too, are interesting, particularly that of her, her Aunt Luna, who was diagnosed with cerebral palsy and struggled to live a good life in a time when disability was considered shameful and hidden away. Nonetheless, I was more curious to know what Rebecca would do next, how she would negotiate her life at each new age, in each new place, in every relationship. My hope is that, like Beauty Queen, Kantika will land a Netflix deal. Then I can spend more time with the world that Graver has constructed, or dare I say, resurrected. And I can see Rebecca again and hear her sing. That was a story told in song, Elizabeth Graver's Cantica, by Karen E. H. Skinnazi, February 16, 2023. And Karen E. H. Skinazi, is PhD, is an associate professor of literature and culture and the Director of Liberal Arts at the University of Bristol, UK, and the author of Women of Valor, Orthodox Jewish Troll Fighters, Crime Writers, and Rock Stars in Contemporary Literature and Culture. Okay, let's go to another uh, story in the Culture section. And uh, this is called Rabbis of LA, Rabbi Levi Kunin, The Chance Car Ride That Changed His Life. Today, Habad of Malibu serves the entire Malibu Jewish community that stretches 27 miles along Pacific Coast Highway and beyond, by Harvey Farr. February 16, 2023 It was a Sunday morning in June, 1994, when 23-year-old Rabbi Levi Kunin and his father went for an unplanned Southern California car ride. Little did he know the ride would change his life. It was right after the Rebbe, Rabbi Menachem Mendel Schneerson, global leader of the Chabad movement, passed away in New York, Rabbi Kunin recounted. found family had just returned to Los Angeles after Shiva. We're all hearted. Then my father, Rabbi Baruch Shlomo Kunin, Chabad's West Coast director, told me what the Rebbe had once told him. When everything, when everything seems like it is falling apart, open another Chabad house. Before they knew it, the father and son found themselves in Malibu. I don't really remember why we ended up there but on the spot we decided malibu would be the next chabad house and i would run it he said rabbi levy didn't waste any time they had a strong supporter of chabad who lived in the area and knew he owned storefront properties one of which was vacant they asked him if they could use the space temporarily to open a chabad center he agreed and a week later chabad of malibu opened its doors for shabbat services not long after, they moved to a permanent location. Today, Habad of Malibu serves the entire Malibu Jewish community that stretches 27 miles along Pacific Coast Highway and beyond. It offers weekly Shabbat and holiday services, as well as an infant center and preschool for children six months to five years. The Gan Malibu Preschool and Infant Center is run by my wife, Sarah, who has done a phenomenal job, the 51-year-old rabbi said, In fact, she consistently wins the Malibu Choice Award for Best Preschool, an award given by the Malibu Surfside News. As further proof of the school's success, the rabbi is quick to point out that parents typically enroll their children for the quality general education, as the Malibu Jewish community is not particularly religious. When the kids get a bit older, they usually attend private or public school. At least they get a solid taste of Jewish values in their youngest years, he explained. One of fourteen children, all of whom are involved in the Chabad system, Rabbi Kunin admits that as a young rabbinical student he had doubts that running a Chabad community was his calling. Growing up in a household where my father was and still is Chabad's west coast director, I saw firsthand all the responsibilities and pressures he faced on a daily basis, he said. I always thought I would work in community service, but didn't think it would be as head of a Chabad community. The Malibu Chabad is one of of upwards of 5,000 Chabad centers throughout the world, all of which share the same mission, to bring Judaism to Jews wherever they live. Each is run independently and is responsible for its own fundraising, programming, and budgeting. The father of nine, most of his children are following in his and his wife's footsteps, working in some capacity in the Chabad network, but not all. As an example of community service being in our blood, he points to their oldest son, Mendel, who lives in New York and works as a therapist. One might think that serving the Malibu Jewish community is an enviable assignment, simply because of its reputation as a wealthy community. While it does enjoy a global image of multi-million dollar mansions, the rabbi notes that the area also contains Jews of all income levels who live in apartments and modest homes many of which are members of his Habad community. Take the wildfires, wildfires that struck three years ago, which unfortunately destroyed a number of Malibu homes, forcing many residents to leave their area. On the other hand, when COVID struck and remote work became the norm, they saw an uptick in the Jewish community. The growth of Habad of Malibu is evident in that Rabbi Kunin recently brought in Rabbi Shalom Eagle and based him at pepperdine university which is located by the malibu coastline it is a unique achievement in that pepperdine is a christian university but has jewish students some of which keep kosher rabbi and mrs eagle have ongoing torah classes programs and events that are working with the university to provide kosher food options in addition last year they had a menorah on campus for the first time for a rabbi who was unsure that he uh, possessed the drive and skills needed to run and grow a Habad community, Rabbi Kunin has no regrets. We have people that are interested in helping the Jewish community in our work, and for that we are extremely grateful, he said. But for mo- but most of us, mo- but most of all, as long as we have faith in Hashem, we are in good hands. Fa- fast takes with Levi Levi Kunin. Jewish Journal. What is your favorite food? Levi Kunin. My wife's challah. No doubt. It is amazing. Jewish Journal. What advice do you have for someone considering entering the rabbinite? Kunin. Be authentic, bold, empathetic, and remember what we stand for. Journal. What is your favorite family activity? Kunin. Hiking. My entire family loves hiking in the hills. Journal. Describe your perfect Shabbat. Kunin. Praying, learning, and just spending time with each other in the community. That was Rabbis of L.A., Rabbi Levi Kunin, The Chanced Car Ride That Changed His Life by Harvey Farr, February 16, 2023. And here's another one. At L.A. Jewish Health, it's never too late to have a B'nai Mitzvah. On January 9, Los Angeles Jewish Health celebrated the b'nai ben- the Mitzvah of four of their residents, Casey Joseph, 69, Judith Caron, 83, Marsha Mass, 81, and Sue Solander, 80. By Deborah L. Eckerling, <clears throat> February 16, 2023. On January 9, Los Angeles Jewish Health celebrated the Banat Mitzvah of four of their residents, Casey Joseph 69, Judith Caron 83, Marcia Mass 81, and Sue Solander 80. Having bought Mitzvah at 83 hit me as a real milestone and a Jewish milestone at that, Caron told the journal. The feeling of inclusion and involvement with my community and especially my fellow students, meant so very much. About 50 friends and family gathered at the synagogue on the Eisenberg Village campus for this rite of passage, typically celebrated by 12 or 13-year-olds. The women read from the Torah, affirming their commitment to Jewish peoplehood. The event was proof that it is never too late to grow in your faith. It was eye-opening to see people who clearly didn't need to undertake this journey and challenge to pick it up willingly And with full hearts, Ron Goldberg, rabbi of the Isenberg Village campus, told the journal. Goldberg taught the students and officiated the ceremony, which was an outgrowth of an adult b'nai mitzvah program he put together with chief mission officer for Los Angeles Jewish Health, Rabbi Karen Bender. In the course of their weekly classwork, several ladies pointed out to Goldberg that they never had their own bat mitzvahs. They had a real desire to go through the process and recognize their Jewish roots. I was always interested in learning about Judaism, but I was always told no because it was something reserved for boys," Joseph said. Solander had a similar experience. When I was in grade school, the Jewish community in my hometown of Minneapolis built a Hebrew school, and I wanted to go. But my mother told me I couldn't, she said. Mass had a very secular upbringing. I never heard of Hanukkah until I was a teen, she said. When Mass became a teen, she began learning about Judaism. She was married in a synagogue and joined a Reformed congregation when she started a family. I had started and not finished bat mitzvah classes in the past, Mass said. When my daughter had a near-death experience, I made a promise to myself to have a bat mitzvah for myself. I'm thrilled I was able to do it, and honestly, I am proud of myself for doing so. The bat mitzvah students met with uh, Rabbi Goldberg weekly. Among the topics discussed were the laws of Kashrut, Shabbat, the Jewish calendar, and the major holidays. They also learned about rituals such as lighting candles and tallit. It was a delight and a joy to learn with, uh, with and from the ladies each week, Goldberg said. Barcaron, having a bat mitzvah, strengthened how important Judaism is to her. She feels fortunate to be able to share the experience with her, grandchildren, grand, her children, grandchildren, and great-grandchildren. This truly reinforced the true meaning of Vidor vidor, she said. Not only did Solander enjoy the process, she found it to be a lot of fun. It inspired me to continue my Jewish learning, and I hope to find more opportunities to do so, she said. I thought it was an amazing experience, Mass said. It truly touched me more than I expected it to. I have a feeling of peace within myself that I was able to accomplish this journey. During the ceremony, Los Angeles Jewish Health CEO and President Dale Sorowitz presented the women with the Kiddush cups, a special cup for sanctifying wine. Andrew Berman, chairman of Los Angeles Jewish Health's board, handed out commemorative certificates to mark the occasion. Whether you're a teenager or a woman somewhat past that, it takes a lot of courage to stand up in front of family and friends and chant words in an unfamiliar language, becoming links in a chain that extends all the way back to mount sinai goldberg said i am just thrilled for these women whose determination and hard work were on display for everyone to see that was at la jewish health it's never too late to have a bene mitzvah by deborah l eckerling february 16 2023 all right let's go to this one new video series uncovers hidden lessons from israel's archaeological past The videos explore how historical locations in israel can serve as lessons for jews around the world and provide a roadmap for a more enlightened jewish future by harvey farr february 16 2023 a new video series titled if these stones could talk brings to life the rich historical archaeological and ethical lessons of israel's past in the hopes that a better understanding of israel's history will contribute to a better jewish future Created and hosted by Rabbi Dr. Kenneth Brander, President of, and Rush HaYeshiva of Or Torah Stone, a modern orthodox movement of 30 organizations with offices in Israel, U.S., the United Kingdom, and Germany, the video series has so far released six, six videos with about 40 more in the pipeline. Many look at Israel as a tourist attraction, albeit a very special one, but the truth is that that nearly every corner of the country holds a wealth of history with hidden messages from thousands of years ago that deserve our attention, Rabbi Brander said in a statement. There is certain fluidity and interaction here between the past, the present, and the future that is just begging to be rediscovered. Rabbi Brander joined OTS in 2018. Prior to that, he served as Vice President for University of Community Life, as well as the inaugural David Mitzner Dean of the Center for the Jewish Future at Yeshiva University, where he also taught rabbinic courses at the Rabbi Isaac El El Theological Seminary. The videos explore how historical locations in Israel can serve as lessons for Jews around the world and provide a roadmap for a more enlightened Jewish future. Topics of the initial video series include a community built by unity, elevating the mundane in search of meaningful prayer, a pillar of tr- or triumph, a pillar of triumph, or a warning for the future, and poisonous pens and slanderous tongues. Rabbi Brander explains that many of these sites are located in places that thousands of people walk by each and every day, and so many Jews come to visit, but are not given the opportunity to appreciate their deeper meaning or examine their relevant the relevance to our lives today. Many look at Israel as a tourist tourist attraction, albeit a very special one, but the truth is that nearly every corner of the country holds a wealth of history with hidden messages from thousands of years ago that deserve our attention. There is certain fluidity and interaction here between the past, the present, and the future that is just begging to be rediscovered we live at a time when the jewish people are becoming more and more fractured he continued when you study the archaeology you will see that some of the challenges that we are facing today whether from the right left center people who support the current israeli government or those who stand staunchly in opposition this is not the first time we as a nation are having this experience generations ago the jewish people had the same challenges sometimes we succeeded in dealing with them and sometimes tragically we did not Visiting these sites and bringing these issues up for communal examinations and discussion brings them back into the light for reflection, introspection, and hopefully an opportunity to resolve some of our challenges. The series is available on the Or Torah Stone website, ots.org.il slash stone, as well as via WhatsApp and YouTube where the episodes are posted weekly. Folks, that'll do it for this edition of Stan Dunn's Jewish Edition. Shalom and peace.